Finnovate showcases cutting-edge banking and financial technology through a global conference series featuring short-form demos and thought leadership. Now, the conversation continues on the Finnovate podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Finnovate podcast. Joining me today, we have Alison Harwood, Vice Head of Marketplace Banking and Head of the London Branch for Varengold Bank. Alison, thank you for joining me. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. So we've spoken to you on the podcast before, but for anybody who didn't hear that episode, it was, I guess, a little while ago now. Can you give us a quick 60 seconds on yourself and how things have been going in the past year plus? Yeah, so um, I'm vice head of Baron Gold Bank's marketplace banking business. Um, in that business, we are working with fintech lenders across Europe to support their business through wholesale debt financing and through banking as a service regulating regulatory fronting business, where we're supporting their launch into new markets under our banking license. Excellent. No, really interesting. And one of the pieces that I wanted to talk to you about today, you guys have done something that's, I think, pretty unique. Um, I'd like to ask about the new pot of VC money that you've put together. Can you tell us a little bit about where that initiative is coming from and what kind of the high level goal is there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was one of um, one of the milestones for, for our business last year was um, putting together um, some retained profits, um, setting them aside to help service our clients more holistically, enabling us to subscribe for equity when they're coming up to, let's say, a Series A, Series B funding. And um, it, it's been a really exciting development for business. We're already providing that that debt financing, the regulatory fronting services. And now we can go to our clients and say, look, this relationship is really important to us. You're doing an equity round. Let's strengthen our, our relationship, our partnership. We can support you um, with um, with part of your equity needs. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because it's a little bit different from what you guys would traditionally do. I mean, certainly it's in that kind of debt financing arena, but this is approaching it from a very different angle. How did you guys get the idea to start doing this? Yeah, so we've been, um, we're supporting really early stage businesses. And what's really important for them is getting wholesale debt financing at an early stage of their development, which is affordable and scalable for their business needs. But at that point in time that we're coming in with the debt financing, there's still quite a lot of operational risk in the business and and some unknowns as to the credit risk that they'll be um, originating. So what we need to do when we're putting together financing packages is say, okay, here's a financing package that that fits your needs, um, but to compensate us for being that that first mover and and coming in at an early stage of the business, we would like to take um, a, a small warrants package that will help us participate to a small degree in the equity upside um, that, that is generated from our support as well as the you know the ongoing development of the business. So we've been um, taking warrants interests in clients for quite a long time. Um, and over over time obviously some of those warrants have been exercised and we see the benefit that that creates in in strengthening our alignment of interests with um, the equity interests of the business 
So this is yet another way that we can understand our clients better, service their needs better by saying, okay, taking the warrants entitlements to one side, we also want to um, put some money maybe at an earlier stage than the expiry of, of the warrants exercise period. Um, and to, to help you go out and, and market your fundraising round effectively outside of um, our relationship. So we, we think it, it helps clients really significantly. Certainly, I think, well, and it's interesting you guys approach it from this relationship standpoint, which I think is really fascinating because, you know, a lot of venture capital obviously gets kind of hung up on the valuation, you know, what do we think this company is actually worth? And there are teams of experts whose job is determining this. And, and I would say it's still not something that people get right all the time. But what you guys have decided to do is sort of sidestep that valuation piece, let somebody else kind of tackle that side of it. And then you can focus on the relationship, which I think is so interesting. And I just want to make sure I have that right. Did I say anything in there that was incorrect or is that about the size of it? Yeah, that, that's right. So we, we would never be a lead investor um, in an equity round. Um, we, we know where our strengths and our expertise lies, and that is in knowing and understanding our clients' business models. So we have these deep relationships from providing the equity finance, the sorry, the debt financing, or the, the regulatory fun, fronting services. And part of our due diligence process um, in onboarding a client for those products is really understanding the scale and the prospects of the business. So we're backing companies who we believe will get to a good scale and will be successful with the product that they're bringing to market. So then that relationship is solidified even further over time as um, we work together on an ongoing basis to make sure that facilities are constantly reviewed to make sure that they are fitting the business's needs and that they are appropriate to what the, 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 the you know, the, the origination metrics that are coming through. So it might be that, you know, we need to adjust certain risk parameters, et cetera. So we're, we're in a really constant dialogue with our clients, getting to know them really, really well. And it makes sense that where we know our clients really well and we believe in their business, that we put money behind that to continue supporting them. Um, and also from a business perspective for us, it, it, it makes sense because we, we think that these businesses are going to be successful and a lot of them um, have been really successful. So now hopefully we can, um, we can participate even more in that upside. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's really, as I said, it's a really interesting concept. And I think, you know, we're, we're getting close to VC funding as a service now. This is almost one of like a, a client satisfaction thing that you guys are able to offer, which, um, but but again, you're, you're spot on. It makes so much sense. You, it's easy to see how there's a potential for win-win all around here. And ultimately that kind of deep client relationship where you're able to become a part of their success, I think is just fascinating. So we're going to have to make sure we uh, come back and see how this is going in a year or two and just what what types of things you're learning i'm sure you will learn a ton as you start to put this into practice and <laughs> um, you know, it could be something that will become a, a really tried and true practice before too long 
I do want to switch gears a little bit here because I rarely get a banker of your stature on the phone. And I just want to ask a couple of questions about, you know, more broadly, what you see as big picture trends for the next year or a little bit longer. Um, and one of the things you mentioned that you've seen some interesting results from Varengold Bank when it comes to open banking in consumer lending. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing there and what's uh, changing the game a little bit? Yeah, we're, we're seeing um, a huge increase in implementation of open banking technology um, in underwriting assessments. And I think it has a huge power in the consumer lending market, particularly in unlocking um, funding for people who may be financially excluded um, or only able to access um, higher cost lending products. But also that, you know, the, the same applies. I think it's an earlier stage when it comes to the SME space. But getting that transaction data really enriches underwriting processes. Um, and I think the fintechs are really leading the way in implementing that technology um, when underwriting loans. Yeah, no, that's, I think, one of those things where we had this idea when you talked about open banking in the space, there were a lot of people had predictions about what it would do. And this is sort of one of the things we had hoped would happen, right, that people would be able to take advantage of it. And, you know, I, I think fostering more and more inclusive financial ecosystem is, is obviously a really good goal. But it's really good to hear that we're sort of seeing that play out in practice. Are there any places where that you can point to specifically where open banking is kind of the difference between somebody able to engage with the financial ecosystem and maybe not being able to? Yeah, I, th I think when you when you look at the near prime consumer space, that's where its application is most straightforward to understand. So let's say you've got someone who has previously used a high cost credit product that would automatically exclude them from the underwriting criteria of most high street banks, um, you know, depending on when they used it. But if you can look at someone and say, okay, two years ago, that person lost their job and I can see that because I can an analyze the um, the transaction data to see what what was what was going on in their bank account at that point in time. They they went out. They used a payday loan to um, bridge uh, a rental payment, um, keep a keep a house over their head. Um, and since then, they have gone out. They've got a new job. They've got income stability, and they've paid off that payday loan then if, if I can see good affordability for that person, which I don't need them to report themselves, I don't need them to input into an application form how much they spend each month on groceries, on entertainment, because I can grab that data directly from their bank account and I can create a snapshot of their affordability based on actuals rather than estimates. And if that person has good affordability for a loan, then why should they be excluded from more mainstream costs of credit? Yeah, and I think what's this just kind of illustrates what's possible with the amount of data that we are now able to find about an individual, right? Traditional uh, black marks on your credit report 
are still there, obviously, but there's a more holistic picture that's possible now where you can really yeah. see a more complete picture of how good of a risk somebody is. Um, and when you get that full story, when you can see more of that history, you kind of get into these extenuating circumstances. And actually, it comes back to the same piece that we are talking about at the beginning of the episode here, where it's about developing that relationship. It's about being able to say, you know, I understand you as a person more than would have been possible even a couple of years ago, and I can make a more intelligent lending decision based on all of these new factors. Absolutely. And it can work the other way as well in terms of identifying markers of higher risk before they come through in a credit score, before they materialize into a loan default. Things like gambling, um, very easy to pick up in open banking data, categorize it. And if you can see an increasing trend of someone spending on on gambling um, or perhaps on, on Bitcoin or, or something like that, then, um, then that's a, a really um, powerful indication of you know, where, where things might go if that person continues in that direction. Uh, and buy now, pay later as well. That It's spotable in the bank transaction data, but of course is not yet reported to, um, to the credit bureaus. So you can see if someone is is using buy now, pay later products, and you can see if they're using a range of buy now, pay later products, um, and maybe if the balances that they're um, accruing on buy now, pay later accounts are, are increasing over time. This is actually a really interesting one as well. Buy now, pay later is obviously is such a hot topic in the world of fintech. We're starting to see some consumer adoption of it. What are your thoughts? Do you think this is going to have a huge impact on consumers' lives, or do you think it might be something that's sort of a, you know interesting for a year or two and then fades into obscurity or somewhere in between? I suppose is also possible. <laughs> I think it. I think it already has had quite an impact on consumers' lives. The convenience of it um, is an incredible driver of success. And of course, we're now seeing um, some, some downside impacts where people are becoming reliant on these products. Um, and I think the, um, the question over regulation of these products is becoming ever more pressing um, in relation to that. And, um, you know, the need for, for financial education and support of financial health, particularly of people become in a more vulnerable state. So I think there's sort of, you know, we're at a maturing point for consumer buy now, pay later, but we're at a really interesting initial rollout point for buy now, pay later in the B2B space, which I think will um, will be um, a, a big trend coming up in the next year, 18 months. It certainly does seem like businesses in particular are eager to get the buy now, pay later links up on their web page. You know, so from that standpoint, I don't think there'll be too much of a difficulty in adoption. But I do wonder about kind of these negative potential ripples that could come from this as people get more involved and potentially into some trouble with buy now, pay later. It's not difficult to imagine somebody overextending themselves pretty quickly. So I think yeah. the regulatory side of it, the idea of what really the potential downsides are will definitely be pieces to watch because it doesn't look like it's going anywhere, but I'm still not sold that it's actually good for consumers in the long run. I guess the jury's out on that one and will be for at least a little bit longer. Yeah, I think so. I, th I think used in the right way, it's a really convenient option. Um, but um, I think there has been um, 
that, that it, it has been marketed very smartly, um, very widely. And so the take-up has been huge, which means that naturally there's going to be take-up by people who use it sensibly, but also by people who might not understand the implications um, quite so well, might become reliant on it. Um, and then, of course, you're looking at um, a situation that would um, potentially lead someone into financial vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch what happens. And hopefully, you know, people do use it intelligently. Hopefully the regulators are able to step in and keep people from disaster. Um, and it'll be just interesting to see. I'm sure we'll have a whole new slate of buy now, pay later educational resources and watchdog groups and things like that to help out. Um, I, I apologize. We have to end it here. We are out of time, but it's always so good to chat with you, Allison. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and congratulations on uh, all the success you've had over the past year and your new initiatives. It sounds like exciting times at Varengold. Thanks, Craig. Really exciting times. Uh, watch this space. Perfect. We'll leave it there for now. We'll catch up with you again before too long, I promise. Thanks. Take care. The Finnovate podcast is produced by Informa Connect in association with Provoke.fm Media. Check out Finnovate.com for information on Finnovate's upcoming shows and to learn how you can get involved. The discount code Finnovate Podcast will save you 20% on tickets to all of our events. And you can email us at info at for information on sponsoring, speaking, or demoing. Thanks for listening.